What up beautiful people? This is the Mindful Wizard with a quick announcement. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you a rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. I'm actually creating right now as I'm walking, so it's very convenient. Then you can distribute your podcast to most popular listening platforms like Spotify with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish video podcasts to Spotify. Make it happen, y'all. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. I'll say it again. You can make money. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is going on, beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of Search for Consciousness. If you can see me, I'm smiling. I'm here with my brother, Professor Montana, a very wise individual. Uh, We met a few years back and we've stayed in touch. I had the honor of speaking at his uh, class, one of his classes in St. John's, and I was just amazed by the way that he captivates the the room and, and people really genuinely love him and learn to uh, love to learn about him. So it's a it's an honor to be here with him. And we're also going to wrap up the year search for consciousness season three Christmas episode with my professor, uh, my brother here. So welcome on the show. And uh, and thank you once again for being here, brother. It's again a pleasure to be here for the second time. And again, I what I really love about your existence is your interest in furthering consciousness and as I always like to tell my students or as I've been telling my students for the past 10 years that I've been educated here in New York that the point of my existence I've realized is to help cultivate a consciousness look beyond our individual selves and to think about how we are in collective struggle around us for sure for sure and um I think you do important work, right? So when I went to your class, it was an emphasis on, on criminology and what we could do to improve the system for people that are marginalized. I think today, though, we're going to take a reflection on power, right, and how it manifests in, in American social life. So you can jump in at any moment. I'm interested in your take on that, and let's see where it goes. Right. So for me, I I always start with thinking about, you know, where am I within this larger structure that we call American society or United States? And so I have to start or I have to preface by um, just throwing out the disclaimer that I have my biases like anyone else. And so here are my biases. I am originally from Colombia. And so my consciousness that has developed in the past 25 plus years that I've been in this country originates from the fact that I'm not organic or endogenous to this context of the United States. However, I came here as a young child. I arrived at JFK at the age of seven, and I grew up here in Queens. And lo and behold, after many years of schooling and getting a PhD, I ended up as a full-time professor at St. John's University, where I got hired to teach both sociology and criminology. And so sociology is the study of 
people, individuals, cultures. It's a study of power. And criminology is the study of crime. And specifically, the way I teach and think about crime is that crime is a production, is a social production of the state, of the media, of different institutions. So I'm very much in interested, I've always been interested as an outsider trying to become an insider to understand what is so peculiar about the American way. Because if we think critically together, we will arrive at the cultural pattern that there is a, is a kind of global pull around the world is a global pull about the U.S. that we collectively around the world interpret the U.S. as a beacon of freedom, as a beacon of hope, as a land of opportunity. And what I want to do in the next 20, 30 minutes is to help people understand that there are cultural, there are multiple cultural contradictions that manifest in the everyday. And on the one hand, this country is in fact a land of opportunity, but at the same time, in a contradictory manner, the U.S. does reveal a number of patterns that punish and criminalize and destroy communities and individual lives. And I want to understand with you and with others that we can study the operation of power across vectors such as race, class, and gender, and where those vectors come from. So if, if I want to think critically with you, how can we arrive at studying race, class, and gender? Well, we have to think about how there are structures of white supremacy. So there are three main pillars or structures of power and violence that I've uh, learned to study in my, all my years of training as a sociologist, that there is white supremacy, which I argue is the key a cultural anchor of this country originating from the legal institution of slavery and how it has reproduced itself throughout the past 100 years, going from slavery to Jim Crow to the construction of quote-unquote urban ghettos and to now the current uh, political moment of mass incarceration and even the notion and reality of uh, incarceration of, of virtual chackles, right, that we're living in now. And so that across 400 years, white supremacy as an ideology in which it, if we think about like, what is white supremacy, it's the ideology or the idea that those that are deemed white are racially superior to others. And so what I do for a living with my students and with just anyone who wants to have a conversation is I like to help people understand how we tend to think of white supremacy and of slavery as something that existed 300, 200 years ago, but in reality, slavery and its operation as an institution came to get re got reproduced along the next two, 300 years. And now we are still engaged, we've always been engaging with the violence of white supremacy, right? And there are ways that we can study that, but it's white supremacy alongside, so this is us being critical and nuanced about, well, where is power in American society? It's not just white supremacy as a structure or pillar of violence and oppression, but alongside that is the very big question of capitalism and how it operates as a structure, as an ideology, Right, and how people try to survive, how we all are trying to survive under capitalism as well. Right? Capitalism is a mode of production in which we are coerced to labor. And so I have a number of students, right, if you want to think about American society, they're going to college because they're trying to become upwardly mobile in a country that promises upward mobility. Right? So they're trying to achieve upward mobility through the institutional means of higher education. But higher education can also fail people. Right, that we're living in a moment now where young people are questioning the validity 
right, of higher education? Will it get me a job, right? So the everyday stresses that manifest out of that, right, of existing under capitalism, of having to figure out how am I going to eat? And I grew up here, as I was saying earlier, that the consciousness I cult that got cultivated in my existence is a consciousness of struggle, of struggling alongside other people in Colombia, but also here in New York. Something that I grew up here in Queens understanding or coming to understand over time is that not only are people trying to survive as racial minorities, but they're also trying to survive as everyday workers, right? In a racial state. And so we often in sociology and criminology think about how the US is characterized right, as a racial capitalist state. But then there's race, there's class, but there's also, if you want to think about another form or another another vector of oppression, right, of violence, we have to also include in the analysis the question of gender. And so here there is, not just in this country, but around the world, there is an everyday systematic practice of violence against women. And so what I want to do is I want to work through it with you to think about how race, class, and gender are vectors of power that are originating from these structures of white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy. Got you. No, 100%. And, and I think that's a good way to break it down. I like how you relate to the content because you yourself uh, admitted that you came from the struggle and then you went to school to try to break yourself free from that. There is a term that you said that I don't understand or haven't heard of yet. Can you expand on e-carceration? What is that and what is that? Like break that down to, to our audience. This is, this is new material that I'm learning as well because I don't know everything and I'm constantly learning. So there's new research coming out within the field of criminal um, justice, the, within criminology, that as we are in the everyday, as everyday people are interrogating the criminal justice system for its racial biases, for reproducing what people like Michelle, Michelle again called the new Jim Crow, right? That as we are trying to think about how do we make the criminal justice system less punitive as it punishes racial minorities, because for those that aren't aware of the racial composition of the U.S. prison system, uh, the U.S. prison system is characterized by 56% of its inmates being people of color, black and brown. So for example, just to be very specific about it, um, according to latest research and data coming from the Pew Research Center, from the US Census Bureau, from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, according to the data sets, African-Americans account for roughly 13, 14% of the US population, but they're overly represented in our US prisons at 33%. Latinos account for roughly 18% of the U.S. population, but they account for over 20, for about 23% of the prison population. If you take 33 and 23, you get 56%. So you have a U.S. prison system that specifically targets people that are that look like me, that are racial minorities, right? So what we've seen to address your question is that in the last couple of years, we've seen a shift, or what some criminologists, sociologists are calling a quote-unquote progressive shift, but in fact, the question is, is it progressive? Meaning we're moving into e-carceration in which there are 10-year-old children, there are 15-year-old children, who instead of being sent to juvenile detention centers, they are being placed with electronic surveillance devices on their ankles as a way to prevent them from 
getting folded into the punitive comp the, the punitive carceral complex of going into detention centers for youth and then eventually end up in prison. So what I did this semester with my students is that I have them think read through some literature that studies and interrogates this incarceration moment that we're in, in which the reality of putting electronic monitoring devices on children in itself also reproduces questions of shame and of stigma of demonization and stigmatization, right? So we can critique that to say that perhaps decarceration in itself is not the solution to our questions of crime and of prisons and what we should do about the question of violence in the U.S. Because a lot of what I do, what I've been doing for the past year at St. John's is helping students think about, are prisons really the solution to crime? And the historical record indicates that in the past 30 years, rather than rehabilitating individuals and human beings, what prisons as a structure, but as an everyday practice, rather than rehabilitating individuals and human beings, they're actually destroying individual lives, but also destroying whole communities across the country. Got you. So, okay. So, so just to understand what incarceration is, it's basically the monitoring of young people to avoid putting them into institutions. But fast forward, your theory or what you're gathering here, based on the data, is that it's basically preparing them for for a life of imprisonment, right? It's basically conditioning the child. And I'll t I'll take a side note. Just to add that when I was young and experimenting and doing naughty things, once I had that stigma or that label of criminal, my thinking shifted. And I was like, I won't be successful anyway, so why does it matter what I decide to do? So that's an interesting take, and I appreciate you sharing that. We didn't plan to discuss this, but I, it just came up listening to you. How do you, I don't want to say battle, but change the opinion or the perspective of someone that says, yeah, but these people are still committing the crimes. Like, how do you get them to see that the crime is coming from consciousness, a specific consciousness? Right. So that's it's interesting because that's actually a huge. So what I engage in in the everyday really is thinking about right, what is truth, right? What differentiates opinion versus truth, which is the field of what we call epistemology, right? And that is really important to think about because what I engage in in the everyday is there are some students who, when you start talking about the U.S. criminal justice system, about a white supremacy and its reproduction in the past 400 years, and thinking about the shift from slavery to Jim Crow and the everyday reproduction of racism, some students get it because they've experienced it, they've lived it, they grew up black, they grew up brown or Asian or Arab in America. But then I also, in the everyday, I also deal with students, and this has happened in the past year as I've been at St. John's, and it has happened in other places, where there are some students that say to themselves, that have told me and have written on exams the following, so pay close attention to this language. I've had some students write in the past, either articulate this in class or write, write in exams, sure, there are some racist people, but there are no racist laws in the U.S. And so I bring that up to give you the example that what we're dealing with, what we've been historically dealing with in this country, are ideological battles, in that there is, there is a part of this country that believes that we are a country, it's going back to the U.S. Constitution, because I always like to think about the U.S. Constitution, right? The U.S. Constitution declares that Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, declares that we have certain freedoms, freedom of speech, 
freedom of religion, freedom of the press, right? And those are very important. And if you think further back to our, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, writing in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So on the one hand, at face value, right, our law, the law of the land, dictates that this is a land of equality. But I try to help my students think about how if we actually critically analyze the everyday, what happens on the ground, in the street and across institutions, the school, of the labor market, right, or of medicine, that in the everyday there is actually a reproduction of inequality and in that we are not all equal, right? That there there are certain groups that have a monopoly over the resources. So to help students think outside of themselves, because a lot of students are just people in general, human beings in this country and around the world, they have the, the it's, it's difficult, the challenge of, I don't understand what you mean about this white supremacy. Like, help me understand that. So I have to go back to, once again, the legal institution of slavery, right? That the U.S. was founded as a slave state. That has to be like emphasized. Right? That's a very important piece. So because the U.S. was established as a slave state, what you had was white folks, specifically white men with property, who created a whole system that gave themselves, endowed themselves with power and rights. So within the legal codes of the U.S., white men and white folk as a totality endowed themselves with rights over right, slaves, which were human beings that were brought against their will from West Africa to the U.S. to labor right, in the fields, to labor in an agricultural economy. And so once you have that consciousness to understand that white supremacy, the idea that whites are racially superior to others, that stemmed from slavery, in that even after the Civil War, that ideology of white supremacy kept on being reproduced, and the way it was reproduced, and this is very important, is that if you critically engage with American history, what has historically defined this country is this language of states' rights, which is, and if you apply that to the current moment, it leads into questions of individual rights. And what I mean by that, that is to say that Historically, states in the South, right, in the U.S. Confederacy, they would use this language of states' rights to say, I have the individual states' rights versus there's federal rights. So the federal government was saying, we need to abolish slavery. And individual states in the South were saying, well, I have the individual state rights to uphold white supremacy, right? And so when you think about that in a historical context, right, you arrive at, well, with the end of slavery, we had Reconstruction, then we had the implementation of Jim Crow, right? So this is something that a lot of people, because again, we're in the 21st century. Younger generations don't understand that if you were black in 1930s and 1950s America, you could not go eat at white-owned restaurants. You were, in, in the everyday practice, you were forbidden from using the same restaurants or pools or community centers that white folk used, right? Because we grew up, our generations, right, the younger generations grew up in a so-called post-civil rights era, right, of colorblindness. And, and we critically, as someone who's an educator as well, what we often get taught or what young people are socializing to believing, right, is that through our educational systems, we get taught that we live in a society that doesn't see race. And if we don't see race, 
then it doesn't exist. But in reality, just to use a very simple example, so there's two examples I want to use. Think about how in the city of New York, there are now roughly 900,000 uh, students in the DOE public school system. The majority of those students are students of color. But what's peculiar, the cultural contradiction is the majority of teachers teaching those youth of color don't reflect the students. The majority of teachers are white female teachers. And you might say, well, why does that matter? It matters because the students do not see themselves represented by their teachers. There's a question of like, what are my role models? And also, if you critically engage in the everyday talk to educators, some teachers, not all, some of these teachers might see the students as a threat to their well-being, as a racial threat. There's the, the stereotype of the angry, angry male of color, right? And so in schools in Oakland, there's tons of literature that looks at how places like Oakland, California, and New York, some teachers are more likely to call police officers if they see a student as a threat rather than calling the guidance counselor, right? So that's one example. Another example, if you want to think about, well, how does white supremacy reproduce itself, right? How does this, the violence of white supremacy reproduce, reproduce itself in the context of the 21st century? New York City, because I just fact-checked this right before getting on, New York City spends, or rather spent in the past year, New York City spends about $30,000 per pupil in the city of New York. But what's interesting and what's peculiar, and it shows uh, where our priorities are as a people, right, is that we spent in the past year half a million dollars, according to the Department of Corrections, to incarcerate one inmate. So here you have to say to yourself, what are our priorities? Are we more interested in educated young people to think about power and equality and progress, right? Or are we more interested in punishing and incarcerating people? The majority, and by the way, the majority of people who are in our prison systems are individuals who were con What are our priorities when we're thinking about, well, how does, how does violence get reproduced, right? That, for example, I have, just to go back into it, so I was specifically stating that in the city of New York in the past year, we dedicated, or rather the city of New York dedicated $30,000 per student, right? Now, in comparison to other states, that's quite high, right? But then if you were to look at that from another angle, right, the Department of Corrections in the city of New York in the past year spent half a million dollars per inmate to incarcerate them per year. So to me, I use that example in my classes to help my students think about, well, what does that really say? Like, what is that reflection of? And I would argue that it's a reflection of a society that is more interested in punishing people, right, for, and again, by the way, I'm not the only person doing saying this. This is not new knowledge, I would argue. This is something that other scholars, African-American scholars, such as Michelle Alexander, in her book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, which was published 12 years ago, she specifically says that, right? How did so many, how did 2.2 million people end up in prison in the U.S. because of a so-called war on drugs? And the reason the war on drugs will never end in this country is because we treat drug consumption as a criminal problem, as a money problem, rather than as a public health crisis, right? And so I help my students think about incarceration, about how much we spend, right, per student on our schools. Because another thing is, every semester I ask my students, how many of you have ever heard of this book, The New Jim Crow? And I, well, I'm never, I'm like one student. And I'm like, well, what is that reflection of? It's a reflection of a system that does not want you to read literature that interrogates 
power, that interrogates how power has been reproduced for the past 400 years as it pertains to the key, what I address as the key, right? Can you hear me? 100%. So the, the consciousness that I got, that got cultivated in me or that manifested in struggling with other people with, because I, I got to one of the most fascinating things or one of the most mind-blowing things to me as someone who was, in, who was originally an outsider to this country was learning race, right? To me, I learned race through the school system, right? And I started realizing as a public school student here in this country, as someone who was trying to understand American culture, I started saying, wow, you know what's really fascinating and peculiar about the American way that the key social marker of American social life is race. This is how people relate to one another, right? Whereas in Colombia, we don't really do that. That's not to say that race doesn't exist there, but the key social marker in a place like Colombia and South America is class. How much money do you have? Are you poor or are you rich? And what's so complicated about the American context is that it's race alongside class, alongside gender. So while I place a huge emphasis on white supremacy, and so to finish out that thought about how does violence reproduce itself, the violence that I see in me every day, in my classes, in the streets, at bars, in the media, is that what happens, what has historically, the perennial history of this country is the following, that there are, pe there are some, not all, there are some people in this country who articulate the language of, well, I have the constitutional right to be racist, and I am protected by the Constitution because of freedom of speech. And what I want to do in this platform is to help people think about, well, if you want to really interrogate that, like really think through that critically, right? You have to say to yourself, well, if you if you dissect that analysis or that way of thinking or that quote-unquote logic, what is that language really rooted in? It's rooted in hate. What you are reproducing is an ideology based in hate and fear, fear of others that you do not understand, you wish not to understand. And furthermore, if I were to bring in here the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, what is the logic of racism? Fundamentally, what you will arrive at, according to MLK, is genocide. At the root of white supremacy and racism is the genocide of another group of people that you think are inferior to you. And I'm coming from a politics and a, and a consciousness of, I am not better than anyone else. No one is better than me. And we have to cultivate across our institutions a consciousness that says, we are in this together, right? And so one of the ways forward right, is to think through these ideas and to have these conversations because my students are telling me that some of them are having these conversations, but they wish that their family members and people in their communities would have more of these conversations. No, I appreciate that, brother. And, and I think you hit a lot of good points. I like the statistics. I think that's the best way of conveying the message. But I, I still... I hear a lot of resistance and I'm not saying from for me in particular, obviously as a man of color, as a man that's that has a lot of friends that get arrested, like you hear it in my lingo. Like I've been in the streets, I know of the streets, I work with young men and women and I wanna save them from that. So so one of my questions 
or I'm trying to take on the perspective of someone that's ignorant to this, right? I think a good question would be something like, if your premise is that slavery and then the continuation of slavery is what puts us in this position, what if they question you and say, well, that was 400 years ago. Why are these people so lazy? Because that's that's the association I hear so often with Spanish men. And I hear that all the time because that's the interesting thing. Because the question is, underneath, if, if I'm claiming and other people are claiming that the U.S. has historically been and continues to be a white supremacist or rather a racial capitalist state, right, that violently captures and destroys non-white life across its various institutions, the school, the military, the prisons, right, the workshop, across all these institutions, right, then how can I help someone understand, right, that it's not just some white people that are reproducing racist things, that it's also black and Latino people who we can also reproduce the racism, meaning in the everyday is, well, black people are in prison, I hear it from my students, black people and Latino people like you are in prison because you guys are engaging in more crime than us. And so my response to that is, but why? Because if you step back and you start thinking critically, how is the labor market in the U.S. right failing people of color? Which is to say, right, what are the jobs available? If you think critically, in the last 40 years, there has been a massive decline of manufacturing labor in this country. So what's available now in the labor market is service, what we often call service sector work which is often very feminized, right? In which you want to work at Target, right? I worked at Target many years ago, right after college, right? There are rules that you have to abide by. There are certain protocols, right? And so within the labor market, you're also disciplined. And if you can't do the labor, they will fire you, right? And so what am I trying to get at? That the labor market, if you start to critically, and especially after the conscious of the pandemic, right? Why don't you? So I ask my students all the time, how come you don't really see a lot of professors that look like me or Latino? How come you don't see a lot of professors who are black or female black professors? Is it because we're too lazy that we're not smart enough to enter these elite spaces, right? How come you don't see enough black female CEOs in the Fortune 500 companies, right? You have to then start thinking, because we're often in the everyday practices that we, we individualize everything. You're not working hard enough. You're too lazy. You don't have what it takes, right? And so what I like to think about is, well, what's the context? What are the contexts and what are the factors? What are the environmental factors that prevent people of color, prevent women from reaching positions of power? Right. And so that's why I've always tried to think with my students, well, there's the operation of race, class, but also gender. Right. And so for someone to tell me that the reason we don't have enough black CEOs or enough black principals is because they're lazy, that really becomes a cultural individualized argument of pathologizing people. Right. Rather than thinking about the structures. And how the structure is set up in a way, right, the educational system, the labor market system is set up in a way that when you mostly, and this is, again, this is all public knowledge, it's not just me, there's tons of other sociologists and academics that have published literature on this to say that, for example, as Margaret Chin, who teaches at uh, Hunter College, she just published a book talking about, well, why is it that Chinese Americans or Asian Americans, as an example, right, they do extremely well 
within the public school systems, within the educational systems in the U.S., they excel. They're excelling far at far better rates than white students. But once they enter the labor market, they find themselves not getting those positions of power. They're not the CEOs. So what accounts for that? And so I have my students think through that. And what I arrive at, looking at the work of Margaret Chin, is that there are coming out of white supremacy, there are hierarchies of race that get reproduced. So what Asian Americans are experiencing in the labor market is everyday systemic racism that prevents them from getting promoted. And so this is often couched within the language of, in her work, the language of Asian Americans dealing with the bamboo ceiling, as an example. So there are different groups of people, right, across this country who are racialized and who experience marginalization. So for someone to provide the very quick response, right, or rebuttal, for someone to spit out the idea that people are lazy, that really just withers down to attacking individual flaws that someone is imagined to have and rather looking at structural factors of race, of the labor market, right, or of individuals being denied, right, the ability to go to college, right? Because another thing to think about is, what if you can't afford to go to school? You honestly do not have the economic means to pay for college. So your only option is to go work, right, in a low-paid service sector job, even though you direly want to have another job, but you just don't have the resources. So a lot of the way I think is about access to resources. And if you start to systematically study access to resources, you can look at how that affects certain racial populations, but also think about how it affects sex and gender. So another way of studying violence and power in this country and oppression is you can also just specifically focus a whole analysis on well, we claim to be a land of opportunity and equality, then why are we taking away the rights of women to have the choice of what to do with their own bodies? In several states in this country, we have taken away abortion rights. We have decimated right, Roe v. Wade. So that's another way to think about power and violence in the U.S. Got it. So, so just to like recap, you're saying that when people use the argument that an individual is lazy, it's the easy way of looking at it without looking at the totality of the systems that we face. I'm gonna take a second to just add on to that. Like, I think I'm a pretty smart dude. I think I'm qualified. I think I have a lot of licenses. I've applied for, I want you to know this, 30 uh, pos uh, positions for an uh, assistant principal, and I've met resistance every single time. So. I'm not saying that, um, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Y'all think about that. And, and let's move on to the next question. So I do want to ask you about two more questions. I think we've covered a lot. I love how you explained how these systems reproduce themselves and how they become taught because that becomes the vernacular of the people that I speak to, those that, that have the resistance to, oh, they're just lazy or, or they're not working hard enough, but they don't they don't take a second to think about the bigger picture. So thank you for that. Now, I want to know two things, and then I want to get to like a positive kind of how can we fix this. Even though you mentioned it already, I want to hear more about it. So, so my first question is, uh, what role does like media play in this? The news outlets, social media, and then I also want to know what's your opinion on the attack of free speech? Like, how does this play into each other? Right. So it's a very, it's a very interesting and very peculiar moment that we're caught in, right? Because... What I do for a living 
is I have an everyday practice of I wake up and I read about five different newspapers. And so it's just I do a quick, you know, browse. I, I read the New York Times. The New York Times is considered a very highbrow, well-read, globally known newspaper, right? But I also read CNN. I also read Fox News, believe it or not. I'm interested, like, what is Fox News? How, is, how are these different media outlets, whether they're U.S.-based or they're based in Europe or in Latin America, how are different media outlets trying to make sense of the same topic? How are they talking about, say, you know, job insecurity and low wages, or the big topic nowadays is inflation, or another big topic is immigrants coming to the U.S.-Mexican border, even though we don't talk about the U.S.-Canadian border, right? So what's interesting is <laughs> what's interesting is that what I do as an everyday practice is that, and, it's, and as someone who has a career in studying how the media can reproduce, right, white supremacy, how they can reproduce narratives of racism. Like the big case that I always teach in my classes is the case of the Central Park Five, right? In 1989, in which young black and Latino boys, because they were not men, these were children, right? Who in 1989 were accused of gang raping a young upper middle class white woman who lived in the Upper East Side. And it was later, 20 years later, uh, revealed through DNA testing that they had not committed the crime. Right. So the media, right, the Daily News, New York Times, these were, you know, newspapers, media outlets that had framed these young boys as wolf packs, as wildings. Right. So it's important to attack the media and how they themselves take a com they're complicit in creating and reproducing these racist narratives that dehumanize right, children and men. Right. Without having all the evidence. So it's important to critique the media outlets, but it's also important, and this is what I like about the, the current moment, as someone who is very, at, at one point in my life, I was very uh, anti-social media, right? And I like to think about how, well, these are the tools. The social media now, right, the, the virality of the digital age, the fact that every person, most, most people in this country, has access to a cell phone, what that means in the everyday is that people are bringing in their own right tools their own forms of communication to debate a given case or a case study right and so this is important because think of the the case of george floyd right so many cases that people brought forward right evidence from their own phones to think about well who was in the wrong here Right? Was it was it George Floyd, or was it someone else? And so I, I to think about how the media. It's, it's we need to be very careful about how and interrogate and critique how the media creates, because that's what we do in criminal or me as a critical criminologist. We interrogate how the media takes an active role in the social production of crime. Hmm. So that's what I do for a living. So it's important to interrogate these major media outlets, but it's also really important for everyday people to bring in their own media outlets through right their own cell phone devices, right? And this is important because the, the older I get and the more I teach, I've arrived at the conclusion that if we're in this democratic project that we call the United States, it's important to have healthy debate and the debate is had by bringing in different audiences. There are plenty of people that are going to disagree with what I'm saying, but I've accepted the fact that that is part of the everyday. 
but I've always tried to work logically through people's words and ideas, right? And I'm thinking, right, rather than attacking the individual, right, for their personality, I'm thinking, well, where did they get those ideas from and how is that related to larger structures of power, such as white supremacy, capitalism, violence against women? And so to answer your second question, right, about freedom of speech, right, because that was the second question, it's a very it's it's a very interesting question to raise because I would argue that is a historically very important question that has been interrogated by tons of people. In grad school, I had to read this book called um, Democracy in America by this French Marquise by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. And de Tocqueville, as a as a, as a, as a French aristocrat, he looked at the U.S in the 1700s and 1800s and said, you know what's really peculiar about this new country, this very young country? It is a laboratory for democratic expression, that there's so many freedoms there. And so what's interesting, as I was saying earlier, is that I'm all for freedom of speech. However, this is where I have to jump into, Always, we always do philosophy. I like to bring in the philosopher Karl Popper to think about his idea of the paradox of tolerance. And so what that idea argues is if the society becomes too tolerant, right, of all these different ideas, it might itself, a, a, to, a society that's too tolerant, right, might tolerate intolerance, which is to say, think of the case study of Germany in the 1930s and 40s and the rise of Nazi Germany, right? An individual came forward with the idea that Jews were the prob were the key problem of Germany's economic troubles and social ills. And in reality, what that led to, the hate that this individual fomented towards a specific group of people led to massive genocide. So that's why I was saying earlier, and I tell my students to always think about MLK. What is the logic of racism? It's genocide. And so what I try to combat in the everyday is ignorance and ideas that are rooted in hate. So freedom of speech for me is important, healthy, but once freedom of speech is predicated on hate and on othering other people and couching them or scapegoating them as the problems of society, then rather than looking at governmental policies or economic policies that produce those said social problems, then that's where I have to really draw the line. Got it. I understand. So, so, so from that point, it's a balancing act. You're basically saying give people free will, allow them to speak, but not to the point where it's going to produce uh, years of hate that will eventually result in drastic action, fear-based uh, craziness, just to sum it up, right? Because, because you said a lot of interesting things. I just want to make sure that for those jumping in and out, they're catching the main point. So definitely thank you, brother. I hope I, I sum that up in the best way. And, and um, you know, I, I like talking to you. So I think we should definitely keep these conversations going. I think they're important. And um, my last question is pretty much what's next? Would you say that we're in bad shape? And can we fix the systemic troubles that this country finds itself in in your opinion so it's a really i really love that question as, a, as an ending point thank you because what i do for a living is in, in sociology what we do for a living is context and interpretation 
So the context is we're undergoing an economic crisis. Uh, we've historically been undergoing and dealing with and navigating uh, questions of power stemming out of white supremacy. We're dealing with questions of an all-out assault on women's rights and access to abortion and their ability to you know, have a right over their own individual bodies. So there are so many so many battles that are being waged on different fronts, right? And so one could argue and say, you know, it's, it's a really bad situation that we're in. But another interpretation might be, and this is the interpretation that I have that I give to my students and who are any, anyone who wants to engage in conversation is, another interpretation is we're actually in a very, very important and pivotal and critical moment for people to continue to critique right, what they see in the everyday as injustices. So I've got into, comp into debates with family of mine who are very smart or smart asses, and one of them likes to make the argument that it is incredible people like MLK who are agents and, and motors of social change in American social life. And I disagreed, and I said, I understand where you're coming from that, with that idea, but I tend to argue that it is rather everyday people who are struggling who are the motors of vehicle or the motors are the vehicles of social change in american social life because it is everyday people who are struggling right with racism with sexism with classism with all the isms to talk to use the language of bob marley right and it is everyday people who are standing up to what they see are injustices. And when enough people, and the historical record indicates, because I, I try to be as historical as possible, how have previous generations dealt right, with what they saw as unjust practices or racist practices? I think back, again, I was raised in this country, so I think back to the civil rights era. Enough people right, across this country, both white and black, right, both white and non-white came together and said, we need to do with Jim Crow and the inequality and the racism, right, that is coming out of this system, right, of segregation, right? And what is the cruel irony about the U.S. is that even though there were a number of successes coming out of the civil rights era, right, 1944, Brown versus Board of Education, 1965, Voting Rights Act, we are in a moment where there, in the past couple of decades, we have regressed on those achievements, and it is important for, and this is the last Thing I'll say for, for the listeners is that rather than navel-gazing and only thinking about ourselves and how we're individually dealing with our own struggles, we need to look beyond ourselves and look next to each other and talk to each other as to how can we create a larger dialogue that our politicians and our media cannot neglect. Because enough people start talking about how they are being mar marginalized, how they are, the communities are being underfunded, that their communities are lacking well-paid teachers, talented teachers, assistant principals that reflect them, guidance counselors that meet their needs, right? Rather than spending more money on police officers and spending more money on hiring educators that inspire, right? And providing resources for mental health services, then we can really make progress moving ahead. But if we continue to reproduce ideas that are fomented in ignorance or that are anchored in ignorance and hate, we will not make any progress. I love that, brother. 
I, I just want to thank you. Uh, we need to have these conversations again. I think in a few months, we'll touch base, see where we're at. We can always build. I, I like to see where your career takes you. Is there any last minute thoughts that you want to add? Uh, how can people stay in touch with you? Any publications, anything new that you're coming out with? So as of right now, I'm going to take a very long break from social media, but I will give you my email. That's my St. John's email. So you can reach me out at St. John's, right? I, there, I know there are a number of people around the world who are very much interested in thinking about this. And, and I always, and I think it's important that we have these conversations because I mean, it was just confirmed for me last last week. I had a student of mine, a young white man, who I never thought about violence against women. It was he, he said to me after class, he's like, "I it made me think about how I just think about me, <laughs> and I never thought about how there are women who walk around who fear for their lives. Why? Because they're women, right? In a society that's very violent towards women. So that's really important. Like just the by the mere fact, right, that there are people that are coming towards me and telling me that I've helped them think outside of themselves to think about how it's not just about them, right? That it's about other people who are experiencing other forms of violence, right? But that to me is really important and indicates a very small sign of progress, but I'll take the small wins. The everyday small wins are important as long as they cultivate a consciousness of mindfulness. Well said, brother. Listen, before you go, don't leave me. Uh, give me your number and your email. I got to stay in touch with you. Uh, you. You've dropped some really powerful points. I think I'm going to listen back. I know people are sitting there thinking, wow, you know, that, that expanded my thinking. I think some people, like you said, there's always going to be somebody that wants to argue, but at least you give them something to reflect on and to separate themselves from, right? They're looking at it from a linear perspective. I think you're looking at it from years of both like individual progress and then what you've been able to do for society. So thank you. I've personally been in your classes and and I know the people love you and they learn a lot from you. You can tell by how the how the class respects you and 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 the communication. So I always appreciate it. This episode's going to air on Christmas. This is a gift to the people. And, and just stay in touch, you know. I would love to see how far you go and 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 thank you for your time, brother. Thank you. And you know, we we uh there's something about human beings is that we are creatures that are very are capable of very beautiful things. And so it's important that we never forget that. Yes, sir. Thank, thank you for the knowledge. And for those of you listening, we appreciate your attention. We appreciate you staying with us, even though there were some technical issues. You know how the Illuminati does. They always want to stop two young brothers and sisters. Guys, we love you very much. A uh, shout out to Dr. Montana for his time. Professor at St. John's uh, Thinker genius and just thank you brother god bless amen and holla